Welcome to Voo Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Innovation within the nascent, upcycled food and beverage industry is exploding as manufacturers and ingredient suppliers, large and small, are drawn to the promise of a potentially higher profit margin, a viable path to ambitious sustainability goals, and a consumer-friendly story about waste reduction in an era when food's insecurity is soaring. So according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted annually globally, including 6 billion pounds of produce that is not harvested or sold for aesthetic reasons in the U.S. alone. In the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency estimates that we waste more food than any other country at nearly 40 million tons, or as research from the Commercial Waste and Recycling Collection Agency, RTS, notes in a report, about 219 pounds per person. As RTS notes, wasting food has irreversible environmental consequences, including generating about 11% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. But from this grim landscape is a significant business opportunity that research firm Prescouter estimates could have more than a five-fold return on investment. In a recent report citing data from the nonprofit Refed, Prescouter notes that the annual investment of $14 billion into food and waste upcycling could reduce food waste by 45 million tons annually over the next 10 years and lead to $73 billion in annual profits as well as greenhouse gas emission reductions of 75 million metric tons. Eager to seize this opportunity, Prescouter adds more companies are innovating ways to upcycle waste streams, leading to significant uptick in patent filings. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Prescouter Technical Director Gareth Armenius and founder of the upcycled food startup Kazoo Snacks, Josh Death, break down the business opportunities in upcycling, including the breadth of applications from foods and beverages to packaging. They also share what companies should consider before jumping in to guarantee that the return on investment is worth it. They also outline common challenges and strategies for overcoming them. So while still an unfamiliar or new concept to many players in the industry and consumers, Upcycling is gaining traction quickly, thanks in part to efforts by the Upcycled Food Association, including officially defining the term in mid-2020, creating a seal, and launching a consumer education campaign. Through these efforts, UFA hopes to double the 5% compound annual growth rate that Future Market Insights predicted in 2019 when it pegged the industry at $46 billion. And while it's still early days, these efforts appear to be paying off, based on the dramatic increase in industry interest, including the recent entrance of large players such as Dole, Mondelez Foods, Del Monte, and Barry Calibo, and investor interest as seen in deals like Rind Foods' $6.1 million fundraise last June and Cafe Bueno's $1.2 million seed fundraise in late 2020. And as Armenius notes, innovation and partnerships in the space is also rising, potentially paving the way for an exponential growth in the future. What we're seeing in terms of an explosion of innovation in that field, if we're looking at 
uh, patent application trends. Just in the last year or so, we're seeing a 50% or greater increase in filed patents in the last one or two years alone or so. And I think that's also you know, a good indicator of renewed or enhanced interest in the area, as well as an increase in innovation as well. Of course, securing IP or a patent around a technology, that represents a significant investment in and of itself. I think where a lot of players land right now in terms of what an investment might look like to them in this space is understanding their own waste streams and looking to co-develop or partner with a company that maybe has a technology that's at least tangentially applicable and then building that out to better suit their waste stream. Finding those partnerships or sourcing upcyclable ingredients isn't as easy as navigating established supply chains for new crops, in part, Armenia says, because there isn't an established repository of information. But he notes this is an area where pre-scouter can help. It's a lot more disjoint, um, not as unified, let's say. So likely... What I've run into a lot of the time is something has come across the desk saying, oh, this is an interesting upcycling technology. And the co-location or geography aspect isn't often the first factor that's discussed. And I don't know that there is yet a good repository by location of these players. That's likely something the upcycled association or refed uh, associations like this would be exploring. A lot of what Prescutter does, to be honest, to connect uh, certain groups with potential solutions for their waste streams. Or, I mean, if they're also looking to incorporate a more sustainable material in their portfolio, it's more of a bespoke type of solution-finding exercise that oftentimes requires uh, intricate knowledge of that material waste stream and the potential avenues that that producer would like to play in or would like to address with that material. So it's really, it really comes into finding targeted solutions at this point. Armenius also notes that sourcing potential waste or byproducts for upcycling is only one of the components that potential players should consider when evaluating an opportunity in the space. And he says it's far from the first. Everyone's situation will be different. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So it really comes down to, I think, targeting or identifying a pain point or understanding a major waste stream that's being produced that you'd like to tackle. So if we're talking about brewer's spent grain or something like this, we'd want to understand that material, understand what we're working with. Are there fats there, carbohydrates, proteins that could be potentially high value components? And then from there, we might take a technology-driven approach and understand, okay, given the composition of our material waste stream, what are some potential applicable technologies? What upcycling opportunities could really leverage that material and would see it as a, a high-value material input as far as the upcycling process is concerned? And then from there, there are a lot of other questions, too. So what is the consistency in the quantity of supply of that material? Is it something like an annual crop? Is it generated on a very consistent basis, uh, on a you know, consistent year-round uh, supply? 
And what's the consistency like in that materials as well? Is there a great variation in the quality and composition and other parameters of that waste material? Those will all come into play in terms of how attractive is that uh, material waste stream to use. So those are a few of the, the key sort of technical aspects of it. Then when we're talking about waste streams also, another major factor is the co-location or close proximity of a potential partner that would be using that waste material in their process. Uh, because it doesn't make a lot of sense to be shipping around large volumes and weights of material to a facility that's in another region, another faraway region. Shipping costs and then associated emissions with that aren't as favorable when we're looking at the entire efficiency of the system. So close proximity, solutions, technology providers, potential co-development partners that are in relatively close proximity also fall into that equation. I think one other point here too is if there's a narrative there with the originator of the waste stream, is it something that they could upcycle and then perhaps later use? So maybe back to the brewer spent grain, is there any opportunity there to use that spent grain in their own products and packaging later on. And that can kind of tie off a nice marketing story as well. If you're using upcycled uh, paper that maybe has brewer spent, spent grain or something like this in the packaging. Despite these challenges, Armenia says upcycling offers a broad breadth of applications from whole foods and beverages to ingredients to packaging and beyond. For example, he points to innovations by the Netherlands-based startup Foodative, which is using apple and pear side streams to create sweeteners, preservatives, thickening agents, and emulsifiers for nutrition and health products, personal care, and the beauty and spa markets. Um, so Foodative is top of mind there. So they have an erythritol sweetener that is coming specifically from apple and pear side streams, which is really interesting. They also have some applications there for more functional ingredients, so emulsifiers and thickening agents. I would say things that are top of mind also across the board or trends in this space would be some of those functional agents as well. So the thickening agents, preservatives, emulsifiers. So the sweetener, thickening agent, preservative, and, and emulsifier. Um, so they're using a fermentation method specifically for the sweetener. I think that's top of mind. A lot of folks are looking for clean label um, colors and then sweeteners are also kind of top of mind in this space. So traditionally erythritol is being done through fermentation using uh, corn. So in this case, they're using that apple and pear side stream and, and waste. U.S.-based Renmetrix is another company that Armenia said is using non-food, unused, and underused plant materials to create supercritical crystalline cellulose, cellulosic sugars, and omnopolymers for nutrition, personal care, and the biofuel market. They're using a supercritical hydrolysis step. So they're taking that material input really using a slurry, essentially, mixing it with that supercritical water, and then pushing it through a hydrolysis process to break it down. And they've developed um, a few different applications also. So not only for 
uh, functional food ingredients, but then also materials all in that portfolio. So they have an Omno product, which is targeting more of that sustainable material push. While upcycling potential waste for human consumption is considered the highest standard, Armenius knows that there is significant potential for creating unique packaging and other food production materials, such as those created by the Israeli firm UBQ and the Malta-based biopowder. UBQ materials is really interesting to me. The material input shift is different from what we've seen with uh, a number of other companies in this space, where others might be using specific um, agricultural waste or food waste and byproducts, side streams, that type of thing. UBQ is using unsorted household waste, which is really attractive. So that's including organic materials um, through to things like unrecycled plastic. And they've come up with a, a process to turn that into their own UBQ material. And I believe in Latin America, they've partnered with McDonald's to actually make food trays for their restaurants out of this UBQ material. So it's a bio-based material, essentially, um, which is quite attractive, and I, I see a lot of potential for it. While the potential for upcycling is diverse and significant from both a business and environmental perspective, so too are the challenges, which the founder of the upcycled corn food brand Kazoo Snacks, Josh Death, learned the hard way when he set out to make a better-for-you, low-carb tortilla chip out of upcycled corn germ and have it actually taste good. The genesis of it was when I, uh, when I ate a low-carb or lower-carb diet, my blood chemistry got better. And so I was looking to try to find a um, product that would sort of, you know, fill the gap of, snacking because we all snack we, it's hard to avoid snacking there's a lot of lower carb stuff out there but you know kale chips and no offense if you like kale chips but there's a lot, a lot of those things really don't taste very good or their taste they're, they're sacrificing taste and so the key was that we had the best taste profile and for, for that my thinking was well we had to go with had to be all corn you can't really have a corn chip or tortilla chip that isn't corn driven or corn based and so that got us doing a lot of searching um, for the right ingredients. And that led me actually to identify, um, and this was before um, upcycling was even a, a term, hadn't really sort of come into vogue yet in the, in the food industry, but led me to identify um, corn germ, which was a byproduct of the uh, corn starch industry, which in the States is absolutely massive. And they just want the starchy, bit for sugar um, or to make into a flour or such, and they don't want the germ, so they break the germ off, and they grow the corn. It's all human food-grade corn, but they grow it, and then they break off the germ, and then they, that, that goes basically to, usually to animal feed. And so we um, upcycled that or rescued that, and were able to incorporate, uh, again, working with the leading food corn scientists in, in the world, we're able to incorporate a lot of it, 40%, which um, people didn't think we could get above 20. Uh, and so we were able to get 40% inclusion of the germ and really drive a, a great tasting product. As Death hinted at, producing a great quality tortilla chip at scale with 40% corn germ wasn't easy. And in fact, took working with three labs over four years 
and ultimately teaming with the leading food corn scientists in the world. And even they initially thought that what he wanted to do couldn't be done. Right from product formulation, I ended up working with three different labs over the course of four years. Um, Each one, uh, the first two failed, um, but we incrementally moved ahead the theory. And then the third one, I ended up reaching out to literally the leading food corn scientists in the world who are in Mexico at a university in Mexico. They wrote the textbook on, on uh, corn and, and um, corn research. And um, they were intrigued about what I was looking to do because they said no one had done that before. And, and they were the ones who took the position that, well, the literature only shows you can only get this high. <laughs> so we don't think we can do that. And, and I was willing to push with them to experiment and to try um, because a lot of it is there's so many different types of germ and the way the germ gets processed and so forth. So we were, even though we've only made like one ingredient change, so to speak, um, because it cooks differently than regular corn uh, and, and, and sort of uh, has different properties, um, and we have so much of it included in the chip, it, it's changed the production process. So the, if you think about a kernel of corn, like the big tip or big part of it um, that you, you eat <laughs> is sort of all the sugar in the starch. Um, you know, that's where all the flavor is. Um, but the germ, which is relatively small, like it might be 15% of the size of the corn, has all the oil and all the nutrients. So um, when you cook them together, you sort of have a ratio of, let's say, 75% starch and then a little bit of oil with the germ. But when you break off the starch and you just have germ, you have a lot more oil in the, in the chip, in the product, uh, it's good oil. It's corn oil. It's um, uh, monounsaturated or polyunsaturated. Um, but it, it's uh, that additional oil uh, in, in a, and having less starch. So starch is really, when you make any kind of dough, it's the starch that pulls everything together and holds it all together. So you take away the starch or you minimize the amount of starch and you have to start cooking things a little bit differently so that things combine and hold together and you have a, have a workable dough. And that's where we've had the challenges um, uh, is figuring out the right variables of cooking temperature and moisture and such to allow for a product, a dough that can come out that's, that's machinable with the existing equipment. No one's changing their equipment for us. <laughs> so it has to work with their existing equipment, which has all been designed for 100% corn, which has a lot of starch and makes a much more easy dough to work with. Creating a viable and tasty formula was only the first challenge. The second was finding someone to manufacture it, which is a common challenge that has forced more than one startup using upcycled ingredients to invest heavily and early in their own facility. But for Kazoo Snacks, Death was able to find a partner willing to work as hard as he was. The next phase was finding a co-packer to scale it up and commercialize it. And the tortilla chip industry is really driven for volume, monstrous volume. Uh, there's something like a million tons that are consumed a year in the States or some massive number. I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's a staggering number of corn chips that are consumed. And so scaling from a lab bench up to commercial size is, is, is a significant challenge. And we spent a lot of time working with a few co-packers to see if we could even integrate into their process. And there was one that we found who was, a, who was 
the, the current co-packer we're working with in, in uh, Florida. And uh, they were able to deliver an excellent product. Um, and uh, we did it through a mini scale-up. So we went from bench to doing 500 pounds. And we did a lot of tweaking back and forth, and we felt, everyone felt that, and we, the food corn scientists were involved and such, and we felt that we had the product. And so um, then we flicked the switch and said, okay, let's do our big order. Let's do 15,000 pounds. And the entire 15,000 pounds was wasted um, because it didn't scale up the way they thought it would scale up <laughs> because of the corn germ inclusion and, and sort of how, what they had to do to, to cook it to allow that uh, product to be, to be machinable and workable. And um, so we had to go through a learning exercise with them as well. And again, kudos to them for, being, for persevering with us. I um, mean, you know, as a small food startup, you're always worried that you're going to lose your co-packers and your support. Um, but they were entrepreneurial and willing to step up and support us and, and continue to push the envelope. But, and now you, the product that we have on the shelves is sort of the, the result of that. But, but they've said to me um, that uh, there was a couple of times when they wanted to throw in the towel, and they also at the end have said this was the hardest thing they've ever done in their uh, manufacturing. After working at the Kings to create Corn Snacks platform technology that can go far beyond tortilla chips, Dev said that he's eager to both create additional products, but also team with larger CPG companies and other entrepreneurs to incorporate corn germ in their products so that the environmental benefits are even greater. We've built a corn snack platform technology, and we've, we have done uh, puffs or extruded, you know, like a Tito Crunch um, or a puff, a cheese puff. Um, we've done that on the bench, and we're actually in discussions about uh, working with uh, facilities, co-packers, to produce that. Um, we can apply our technology into tortilla bread. Actually, the, my co-packer bread, or tortilla bread, um, I say tortilla bread to distinguish from the chip, <laughs> uh, that was the main thing that they did for most of their, uh, of their commercial operations. They only recently got into chips over the past few years. And the food corn scientists in Mexico, it's tortilla, is the number one thing that they focus on. So we can, we can definitely transition into that, and we can also transition into crackers. Um, so we can pretty much cover any kind of corn... Uh, baked good, snacked good type of thing with this approach uh, and methodology, which is exciting. And that's really where we want to take the company and uh, demonstrate. You know, if you want to move the needle, um, it's great to have a successful business. Uh, and and everyone would, every, every entrepreneur would want that. But I think to really move the needle, we need to demonstrate to the larger uh, food industry that what we're doing with upcycled germ is something that they could do uh, you know, we got 40%. I mean, maybe they put in 5% or whatever. But there's still, by doing that, the volume that they move, which is staggering, again, the impact on fully utilizing, you know, uh, the corn kernel as grown for people and mitigating um, having to regrow corn, regrow corn for all these different purposes because you keep breaking it apart and giving all the junk or the leftover byproducts to animals or whatever or to waste channels. Um, optimizing that at, at a larger scale, that's really our ultimate, our ultimate objective. So I think by building out this skew or set of product suite based on our approach and, and uh, demonstrating that this is viable, this is something that is, uh, tastes good, that there's, a, that there's sufficient margin here, especially if the larger players can scale totally differently so they operate in a whole different space than we do. But um, that's really the ultimate sort of intent and, and desire with what I want to do with Kazoo. 
As illustrated by Death's experience and pre-scouter's research, playing in the emerging upcycled food and beverage space is not for the faint of heart, but it does hold significant potential, making it a category to watch closely in the coming years. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope that you'll join me again next week, and to ensure you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.